Uh, as Gino said, we're going to look at Job 1 and 2 as our background scriptures as we continue in our Soldier Up series talking about spiritual warfare. How many of you have uh, seen, the, I asked this on Sunday too, how many of you have seen the movie God's Not Dead? <clears throat> okay, so most of you know what I'm talking about. I could have written God's Not Dead. I should have, actually. My very first day of classes in my very first class at UC Riverside, Professor Bernd Magnus, chair of the philosophy department, opened his lecture by stating that Christianity had failed. As proof, he offered the two horrific world wars of the 20th century. Certainly no good God would allow anything like that to happen. I wasn't a believer at the time, so I bought into it. A few years later, after I got saved, I felt a strong leading to go and share Christ with another of my philosophy professors, James Biffle at uh, San Bernardino Valley College. He respected me, so he tried to keep his disdain to a minimum. His big argument against God was the fact that God would allow Satan to devastate Job. He understood it was a test of faith. He simply objected to pain and suffering and affliction as being in any way compatible with a good God. Most of you have seen God's Not Dead. You know it hinges on the suffering that the philosophy professor endured when as a 12-year-old boy he had to watch his mom die slowly from cancer. Now let's agree with most scholars and say Job is the oldest book of Scripture. It's subject matter, why God, if you're good, do you allow evil? It's as if God is saying, let's get into the problem of pain and of evil and of whether or not I am both almighty and good right now, right from the start, before we talk about anything else. And I think that's super instructive. I know our Bible is laid out the way it is for a reason, and, and it, it's great. But if you look at the book that was written the first, the first book of Scripture, God says, this is what I want to talk about right now, then we can get into everything else. Because the Lord knew that this would be a huge subject that people want to get into. And so, let's read uh, the opening verses of Job, starting in verse 1, of course. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Great saint, great dad, great citizen. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now this word Satan, it's used most frequently in the, New, in the Old Testament, not as a name, but as a noun, and it means accuser. In three places, here in the prologue of Job, in Zechariah chapter 3 and in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, the word refers to a particular celestial being. Literally, in Job, he's called the Satan, the accuser, describing his behavior. Eventually, the Bible drops the article and simply calls him Satan. Sons of God is a title for angels. 
Chapters 1 and 2 of Job describe two scenes in which Satan, along with other angels, present themselves before God in heaven. Does it blow your mind that Satan has access to heaven? Well, that he uh, would have a dialogue with God. It's definitely not the pop culture view of the devil as the ruler of hell. It, it kind of challenges a lot of what people normally think about the devil. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered, the Lord said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. If you think Satan is a tourist, consider what Peter said about him, that he goes about on the earth as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so it shouldn't surprise us that he went after Job, who was the, I guess, for lack of a better word, the greatest man of his time. In verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him? This is why I titled the message Satan the Hedgehog. I love it. <laughs> Two thumbs up. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Two important truths, at least, are understood from this encounter. There are more, but here's two. The first is that Satan is a malevolent enemy seeking the destruction of God's saints. The second is that God is almighty. He can put a hedge of protection around his saints, and Satan must have permission to get through, over, under, or around that hedge. And the Lord said to Satan, verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, this is where it gets dicey. When God gives permission to breach the hedge, this is where we balk and we have our questions. And so let's see what happened to Job first. Verse 13, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided them and took them away, indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. It fell on the young people. They are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, this is all the devil's doing in opposition to God. While clearly subordinate to Almighty God, he nevertheless wields vast power over nature and over ungodly men. In subsequent weeks, we'll look at the things Satan can do and does in his warfare against us. Then Job arose, verse 20, tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And so Job came through it with his faith intact. 
That's not to say his heart wasn't broken or that he didn't have moments of despair, only that he looked above his circumstances to heaven. I think it's important that we pause just for a moment and understand the pathos of the situation. Uh, we always at the end, we'll see at the end of the book, not all the specifics, but God restores many things to Job. He gives him more children at the end of the book. But that would be like saying to somebody who's lost a child, well, well you can have more children. So why, why would you be bothered by the death of this child since you can, you can always have more children? And all the other 99 stupid things people say uh, when there are tragedies. I'm going to write a book someday of things, not just that I read about, but that I've actually heard people say. Uh, it's crazy. And so, so I think we can't look at Job and think that he was whistling Dixie. Uh, you know, I mean, let's be realistic. He loved his children so much that he sacrificed for them and, and took them before the Lord. I think he probably could care less about his possessions, um, you know, in, in terms of that. But when, you, when you, all of his children were killed at once in this disaster, and as far as he knew, these were all natural disasters. I'm sure that it caused him a great deal of pain. But through it all, he did not sin nor charge God with wrong. In other words, he did not lose his faith in the Lord. He didn't attack the Lord. Again, there was a day, verse 1 of chapter 2, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. I guess he has no shame. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord, saying, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. This is Satan's idea of a leisurely stroll, by the way, is what he did to uh, Job. Uh, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. We have a relentless enemy bent on our spiritual destruction. You would think... After Job got through with, you know, I, he has no more possessions. I've killed all of his children. Maybe I should move on to another target. He wasn't through with Job. He wanted to take him down even more. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Oh, there it is again. Permission to breach the hedge. Satan can only act within boundaries. It's just that the boundary seems so lax at times. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this Job did not sin with his lips." Now, before commenting any further, <laughs> let's note that three characteristics of Satan here in Job continue into the New Testament. I've already mentioned one, that he roams the earth as a roaring lion seeking humans to devour. Uh, the second is that he accuses Christians before God's throne, and we see that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. And the third is that Jesus described Satan as desiring to sift Peter and presumably other believers as wheat, similar to what he did against Job. And so that's, that's kind of the M.O. of the devil. He's seeking to uh, destroy believers by accusing them before the throne and then coming to the earth to do whatever he can 
against them. And so Job is thus an ancient story that repeats itself in each of our lives to some degree. Not that Satan himself has come against any one of us. You realize the devil is not omnipresent. He's not like God. He can only be in one place at one time where we know that he's in San Francisco, so he's not, you know, bothering us. Or just pick any other town. Maybe he could be in Vegas gambling this weekend for all I know. But, but the devil's only in one place. So, so, so when I say the devil, I mean him, his malevolent forces. This is, this is what his army is all about. Now, we call the effort to resolve the problem of pain and evil theodicy from the Greek words theos meaning God and dike meaning justice. I reject any answer that makes God the author or the initiator of evil. And one thing Job teaches us is that God is not mysteriously behind all the evil, pain, and suffering in this world. A malevolent being has that distinction. Nothing that happened to Job was initiated by God. Now, if you think that God, by giving permission, initiates or is the author of evil, you're just mistaken. The fact that God can and does set hedges ought to show us what His attitude towards suffering is. He wants to prevent it. He wants to minimize it. And, and so Satan understood that God was protecting Job. And so rather, obviously, we're still going to have to struggle with why he removed some of his protection. That's the big question. But from the get-go, we see that God's intention, God's heart, is to be a protection to us, is to keep us from these evil things. Satan doesn't seem to be God's instrument or God's servant, as some theodicies would suggest. No, he is always an antagonist. He is always an enemy. Still, the question remains, why relax the hedges? Well, I'm realizing as I get older, there isn't any one single answer to that question. Free will is an important part of any theodicy that rejects the idea that God is the author or initiator of evil. You may not think there are theologies that project this, but there are. They say, you know, God meticulously has planned every event in the universe, and, and even the evil things that happen, He has planned. And then they turn around, they say, but He is not the author of evil, and they have all kinds of philosophical hoops that they try and jump through to say that even though God actually causes the evil and, and, and Satan is His instrument and His servant, uh, He's not behind it. Um, th that just doesn't work for me. Uh, God is not the author or initiator of evil. The Bible seems to present free will as the culprit, first in the rebellion of Satan and one-third of the angels with him, and then in the disobedience of Adam and Eve. So I would definitely say that evil exists because God created beings with free will to obey Him or to disobey Him. And it was necessary to do that since love requires free will or it ceases to be love. And because of the nature of creation and the nature of man, the nature of our hearts, the resolve for sin and suffering required God to come as a man, and that took time to unfold through human history. Uh, I, I, if, you, if you read the Bible from a historic point of view, from God's promise to come and deal with the issue of sin to the point we are at right now, and you understand the coming of Jesus Christ through Abraham and Israel to Israel and His rejection and coming again, all that we can say is that God's dealing with the problem of sin created by our free will and our poor exercise of it takes time to unfold because of the nature of human beings. 
Free will only gets us so far, however. As one author put it, understanding why God made free beings goes a long way in answering why evil in general is allowed to take place, but it doesn't address the mystery of why particular evils happen to particular people. It doesn't answer the age-old question, why me? Nor does it answer why God seems to miraculously answer prayer sometimes, but not at other times. Why does everything in life, including God's interaction with us, seem so arbitrary? Well, Job can help us with that. It's just that we won't like the answer. God answers Job from a whirlwind by listing things Job cannot do and cannot begin to comprehend. It goes on for several chapters. This is a major part of the end of the book. For example, in Job 38, beginning in verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? And so this goes on chapter after chapter where Job is questioned by God saying, can you even begin to comprehend the complexities of the universe that I have created? To say nothing of the complexities of the human heart and the human mind and how that must interplay with free will, real free will. And so the answer given to and by Job is that God's ways are incomprehensible unless He definitely reveals them to us. Meanwhile, we know that He is both almighty and good, so the proper response to suffering is always faith that endures. What we learn from Job is that he believed God was almighty and good, and his faith endured in his great suffering, and that actually is the only answer we're liable to get. We also see in Job that God can redeem everything that happens to us, making all things work together for the good. When we read at the end of the book, 42.12, now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And so, um, Job is a practical illustration of all things working together for the good. Now, that's not to say that everyone who suffers will see in their lifetime the good that God is working together in redeeming their situation. Half of the super saints listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, they died, it says, without receiving anything resembling good on the earth. And so, what, I mentioned this on Sunday if you were here. One of the problems that we have is that we see the examples in Scripture where God gives us these sweeping view of, of um, things that are sort of incomprehensible to us, and then we think He has to do it exactly like that for us, and I use the example of Joseph. So we can read the remarkable story of Joseph and see point by point by point how God connects the dots to save the nation of Israel and preserve the line of the Messiah. And Joseph can exclaim, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Then we make the mistake of thinking that we will always see all of the connections in our own lives. When the point of that story is, Satan meant it for evil, the world means it for evil, things evil happen, but God redeems them for the good, even if I don't see that happen, even if I don't have the Joseph moment of seeing my brothers and weeping and having that. God gives us a complete picture of what He does all the time 
so that we understand what he's doing. And, and, and the problem we have is, like I said Sunday, we want an explanation. We understand that God is able to build big hedges around us, and when things go through the hedge or under it or around it or however, we want to know why. And God says, I'm almighty, I'm good, and if I began to tell you, you couldn't comprehend at this side of eternity. It's incomprehensible. Yes, he could stop all of those things. Why he doesn't is incomprehensible. Now, with Job, he never imagined it, but how many multiplied millions of people have benefited from his story? If God could have, you know, appeared to Job, let's say, and said, hey, Job, here's, there's a, I'm, in a, I'm in an argument with the devil. I want to remove some of the protection from your life, and it's going to be pretty, pretty hairy. I mean, it's going to get really wild. It's going to go crazy. I think you can handle it, but, you know, it's, a, it's, like, a, it's like a spiritual assignment. One of the things that's going to happen is that multiplied millions of people throughout human history are going to read your book and, and be strengthened and blessed in their own suffering. Are you game for it? I mean, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt bad. But are you on board with that? Job may have said yes. What a, what a blessing that would be. But in Job's case, even though we learn all about what God is about in Job, God never tells him what went on. God doesn't come to him in chapter 38 and say, hey, this is about an argument I'm having with the devil. Just hang in there. It's all going to turn out. He says, hey, here's my answer. You can't comprehend the complexities of this issue. We're almost glad that God moved the hedges in Job's life because we can draw strength from it. Job never knew what had occurred in heaven. He had no reason to think that his tragedies would instruct anyone after him. No explanation was offered him except that God's ways are incomprehensible. We are more like Job in that we'll most likely not see the reasons or receive the explanations or make the connections. Job had to be content with coming to a greater knowledge of God than he had previously, which he did, exclaiming at the end of the book, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And Job was saying that I have a, a new view, a fresh revelation of God because of what I've been through and how he answered me. One author called this the theodicy of theophany. A theophany in the Old Testament was a visible appearance of God, most often in a human form. Often these would be called Christophanies because they were appearances of Jesus before His incarnation. Uh, whenever you see the, a reference to the angel of the Lord, it's Jesus. And so God uh, appears as a theophany. In His pain, God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind, and that was a theophany. And so that, that, that actually was God's answer to Job. It says, I'm going to talk to you directly. I'm going to reveal myself to you. In the end, our theodicy is a theophany in this way. Uh, we don't get theophanies anymore because Jesus came in the incarnation as the God-man. So, you know, this isn't really happening. But we can use the terminology in this way. We see Jesus in a deeper, fuller way when He walks with us, yoked with us, in the fellowship of suffering. Is that the reason for our suffering? I think we have to back away from reasons and explanations and just say to ourselves and to others, Jesus 
is revealed to you in your suffering as suffering with you. He is there for you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Um, not ever. He knows what it is to suffer. And when we start to accuse God or wonder what God is doing, remember that Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. And so when I see Jesus, you know, I, I think we've come, there's a certain idea that we have that, that God, you know, is a little bit cranky or angry or, you know, and then Jesus comes and be, hey, Dad, now come on, Dad, you know, these are my friends. And so, but Jesus said, no, you don't understand. I and the Father are one. When you see me, you see the Father. And what do we see in Jesus? Jesus is always against evil. Jesus is always casting out demons. He is always working to heal people and to help people. And so any idea that we have that God initiates the evil in our life, uh, you know, needs to go out the window. And yes, I guess ultimately I'm saying it's a mystery why James is beheaded and Peter is set free from prison. And that's all fine and good until it's you that's beheaded. And then you think, you know, I could have used a little bit deeper roots in my hedge. You know, my, <laughs> it's it. Uh, and so I say that we just leave that in God's hands. It's a mystery, knowing that He is working all things together for good, that He will redeem these things in our lifetime or after, uh, and that's as far as we can go with it. Definitely we're in a war. Satan is still doing what he did to Job. Uh, and, um, you know, that's why we have all this suffering. And instead of seeing God as the one who removes hedges, which, you know, happens sometimes, I like to think of him as, for the most part, keeping the hedge intact. I mean, imagine what the world would be without the hedges that he has around our lives. Uh, it would be awful. Um, complex, things are a lot more complex than we realize. And um, God is doing uh, a, a wonderful thing in revealing himself through Jesus Christ. Amen?